Michelle Weidenbetter, your chief hope builder here at Moms Letting Go Without Giving Up. If you haven't found our private Facebook group, I invite you to go to Facebook and type in groups and then Moms Letting Go with no spaces and come on in. We'll hold your hand. We'll give you support. We'll pray with you and be what you need to love your child well through this addiction crisis in your life. Um, If you listen to the podcast and you feel inclined to leave a review, I would be ecstatic because that's how others find us. And if you are somebody who is on the hunt for some instant understanding of your child's addiction um, and want to learn everything that you can, you can go to momsletting.go.teachable.com and I have three courses currently there, Understanding Addiction, How to Control Your Obsessive Thoughts because we all think our children are going to die of an, in an overdose um, and it's paralyzing, I understand. I also, the latest one is an 11-step um, video series of what moms can do, right? And each video is just two to two to three minutes long. It's very short. Um, you can get through that pretty quickly. So I'm also looking for a power team. If you're a mom of an addicted loved one who is maybe even in recovery and you have been in recovery long enough that now you want to do something to give back and help other moms, I have just recently become an unhackable coach and I'm looking for other moms who want to become unhackable moms of addicts. I will call us the unhackable hope builders. So um, reach out to me if that's something that is of interest to you. And um, God bless on your journey. I look forward to serving you here. Awesome. Thank you. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for coming. And if you are seeing this on Facebook, welcome. Today, I am interviewing Pam, who's the director of Thrive Family Support um, at Breakthrough Ministries. She's a certified family recovery coach at Certified Family Uh, Maybe, did I say that wrong? Maybe it's redundant. She's also the author of Praying Our Loved One Home, Daily Prayers for Prodigals. And um, if you haven't seen her Facebook page group, Praying Our Loved One's Home, it's, it's such a blessing. She's been sharing some things on our Facebook group, in our Facebook group, and I, I'm super appreciative. Um, But today she's going to talk about how she learned to radically love her son, because when she shares how she did it, hopefully it's going to help us all learn how to love our addicted loved ones um, when it just seems impossible because they are so unlovable at different times of their, in their addiction, um, especially when they're using. So um, thanks, Pam, so much for coming and being our guest. I love having you here. And I think we're going to start with a prayer. But if you want um, to add something to that bio, because that was pretty choppy. I know you're so many other, you know, tell us how long your son's been in recovery and all that. 
So. Do you, should we pray first? Sure. Let's just open it up in prayer. I'll go ahead and Lord Jesus, I just thank you. I thank you that you are a God that gives us technology so that we can come from all over the country and sometimes even the world to gather together. That your word says when two or more are gathered that you're in the middle of us. And so we invite you into this time today. Lord, my prayer is that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you would guide the words that I say, that you would soften um, these women's hearts to hear what you want them to hear, Lord, and at this time would be edifying and honoring to you. So Lord, we just invite you in today to this moment, to this time for such a time as this. And I thank you that you are a good and gracious and loving God who meets us where we're at. And we just pray over this right now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Do you want me to just kind of dive in? Yeah, tell us, tell me again um, what your son's name is and tell us a little bit about his story and your story and how they, how that goes. Yeah, so um, my son is Jake and I call him by name. Um, that's one of the things that I purpose about my walk through this journey with addiction is I don't use the term addict, alcoholic. I um, call my son by name and that comes right out of Isaiah because the Bible says, I, I have not forgotten you. I have written your name on the palm of my hand. And so early on, as I was thinking about my son and his identity and, and those terms, I just have always purposed to call my son by his name. Um, it's something really important to me because I don't think our identity ever is in our disease, our sin, our behaviors, our struggles, our suffering, our identity is really in Christ alone, which is sort of part of my whole journey is getting my identity back as a mother with a son who has suffered from substance use. So really my story starts when I was born because I was born into a family where I had parents that suffered from alcohol use. And so I grew up in this very crazy, chaotic environment. The behavior patterns that I learned were informed by trauma and by behaviors that were um, rooted in the disease of addiction. And so whether I wanted it or not, it was there. And it's really a part of my story. My dad died when I was 27 from his alcohol use. My mom actually went through treatment when I was 17. And so we got that background of, I think even at, at an early age, I understood the disease of addiction and believed that it was a disease. Um, I had siblings that have struggled with substance use. I have a sister who still struggles on and off today. Um, she lives in poverty and has mental health issues, um, but you know, really um, stable in a way that doesn't look like what it might look like for us but I've learned to just sort of radically love her where she's at. And then of course, as the story goes with how I'm sure it does with most of you is my, my, as a believer, my heart was that we would be able to parent in a way that addiction would not affect our family. So I wasn't one of these people that you hear were like, it wasn't even on my radar. We didn't have any people in our family that struggle with addiction, I, 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 you know, it just 
caught me by surprise. In our case, it didn't. And in fact, just with my son and his personality, he was always super challenging. And one of those kids that came out of the womb, really had I known prophetically what I do now, I probably would have never named him Jacob. (laughs) Because I think about what his name means. And I, I think how similar he was to Jacob in the Bible. But the really good thing about this story of Jacob is there's a second half to that story, which is how Jacob wrestled with the angel and became such a godly man. And so that's the vision that I have for my son is that he he has a, a second part of his story, which is yet to be lived out. But um, anyway, beautiful kid, full of energy, full of life. Uh, And yet he would say, never felt like he fit in. Um, I think the world would label him ADHD. I don't like labels, but he was active. So we homeschooled him. So he didn't have to be confined to a desk. We had him in sports and activities. He was raised in the church. Um, So honestly, if you were to look at things from the outside of our family, you would think, you know, we had checked all the parenting boxes and our first two kids followed the plan. And I always like to say, if we would have just stopped with two, you know, we'd probably be creating parenting courses for (laughs) families because we, you know, like those two kids are, um, you know, as defined by the world, really great, successful kids. And I'm sure all of you have, you know, a a child like that, right? But I, I think God just knew that, I needed something different in my life. And um, when I talk to families, one of the things, and especially mothers, I just really feel convicted that God knew that you were the perfect mother for your child. And God knew that your child was the perfect child for you. And I think sometimes if we shift our thinking and shift our paradigm to this idea that This is not by accident. This is not, yes, our children have free will, but God knows. God knew that we were going to be on this journey. God knew that there was going to be suffering on our journey. So our son is 13, you know, probably started to see signs of problematic behaviors when he was 11, 12. At 13, we get a call from school that he had brought a backpack full of pills home from school. And so that was that first aha moment that I know many of you have had where you're like, okay, this is not just naughty behavior. This is really a problem. And, um, you know, so at 13, we just doubled down, you know, we doubled down on our parenting. We doubled down on making sure that he was active, making sure that he had outlets for that behavior. Um, but it, the, the substance use escalated. And so our story is that by 15, he had it was in his first treatment program. However, in our state, as with many states, at uh, 16, having left treatment AMA against medical advice, um, he realized that we couldn't keep him in treatment. That we, that by law, he had to sign himself in. And there was no way you could force him. Treatment isn't locked short of, you know, a civil commitment or something really extreme, which we, it was not appropriate for where he was at with his addiction at that point. We, you know, we had to bring him home and you're not going to kick a 16 year old out of your home. 
And yet, because he knew that he couldn't, he didn't have to go to treatment and there was really nothing we could do. Um, that summer was the summer I call the summer of brokenness. And in my book, I, I talk about it and um, just how that summer, you know, I just sat on my chair and just cried and cried out to God. And I know many of you have been there, right? Where you sit in your chair and you're weeping and sobbing and you're like, Lord, what can I do? What do I do? And I remember just praying for an intervention. And what, Lord, whether it's an accident, just short of death or an overdose, I, I worried that he would show up on our front lawn, you know, dead, right? And at that point, it was, it was mostly drinking that was extremely problematic. So, you know, we're, we're just beside ourselves. We don't know what to do. You know, the, the people that were our support systems at that point really put a lot of judgment on us. And I'm sure you guys have felt that even from beautiful people within the church. Well, this is just sin. You know, you just have to double down on your parenting. You know, take us, take this away, take that away, do this. Don't. And, you know, it's no matter what you did, it was going to be wrong because everybody has their own idea of how to walk through this and what's going to work and what's not going to work. Um, but we, God did answer our prayer and the intervention was a criminal justice intervention in the fall of that year, he was um, charged with felony breaking and entering of an occupied dwelling as a 16 year old, which is really about the, the uh, short of like, you know, murder, um, an attempted murder, breaking into an occupied dwelling is a pretty serious um, issue. And yet that brought us to a point where then because of that, he was mandated to treatment again. He was in um, juvenile uh, drug court for a year and a half, did really well. Um, and I don't want to go through all the details of our journey, but in his senior year of high school, he uh, was playing rugby. Rugby was his thing. And he broke his femur. Um, first came out captain of the rugby team. His identity was very much rooted in his athletic abilities and that just escalated everything. So, you know, that then began the journey of benzos and pills, which ultimately over the years led to um, meth use and IV heroin use. So um, the part about my story that I think is really significant and that I really wanna share today is how I got to the place where I changed my way of being with my son and started interacting with him differently because, you know, as you know, it, it can become supercharged in your family. And he's a minor, he's, you know, using substances very problematically, bringing drugs into our home. Um, so we had asked him to leave the first time, the first two times we asked him to leave, it was awful. Um, we kicked him out. And it was like, you know, very volatile and very much filled with anger and not done in love and not done in a way that honored God at all. And my angst became um, that I felt like I was violating my values and not honoring God in the way I was interacting with my son. I was very reactive, very angry. I was definitely triggered because of my 
growing up in that family that had been very volatile and angry and we didn't learn how to communicate effectively. Um, so one of the interventions that God gave us was DBT therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. It's a skill-based therapy that, that really saved our family during that time. But there was a, a time where he had been out of the home for about six months and he was asking to come back. And, and um, we were debating about whether we should let him come back home. He wasn't even 18 at that point. Um, and we sat in front of this pastor and I get kind of emotional when I talk about this. But he looked at us and he said, and I still have this written down on a piece of paper. And he said, are you gonna be right for the sake of justice or are you gonna love for the sake of relationship? Because love never fails and justice was already paid for on the cross of Christ. And that hit my heart, but I still didn't know what that looked like. However, I was asking myself a few questions and those questions were this. Um, if my son got better, would he want to have a relationship with me? Or would I be so volatile and so toxic that he wouldn't want to be around me? And I mean, you know the type, right? The, the people that you, you're around and you're like, oh my gosh, if that was my parent, I would want to go use too, right? There are people out there that I run across at times where I think, yeah, you know, it kind of makes sense. Um, but the second question was, if he got well, would he want to have anything to do with the God that I say that I represent? That was really important to me because my son really had, you know, I, and, and seriously, in the disease of addiction, in addiction, you know, all of our kids run from God. I don't think there's really too many kids, although I do a lot of work with the homeless and it's really remarkable about how people lean into God when they're at their, you know, breaking points. But for most of us, our kids will say, you know, I don't, I don't believe in that God. And really what they're saying is I'm so filled with shame that God won't have, want to have anything to do with me. Right. So I don't think it's that they lose their faith. I think it's that they're so steeped in shame that they they just think God is is de, has deserted them right and then the third question that I asked myself was because death is a part of this disease if he died tonight what would those last interactions I had with him look like And as a, as a result of those three questions, I knew that I was the one that had to change. I knew that I had to be, I had to activate my recovery. I had to change my way of being. I knew that I couldn't expect him to be different towards me unless I was different towards him first. And so I really had to do some investigative work and dig in and figure out what that looked like for me. Um, I, I took our peer recovery coaching in our state. I learned motivational interviewing techniques. I dug into you know, my faith and what I thought Jesus would do and what love looked like from a biblical perspective. And I really mixed that with 
evidence-based best practices that were congruent and synergistic with my faith principles. So there's a, a program out there called CRAFT, Community Reinforcement and Family Training. It's informed by you know, things like motivational interviewing and DBT and, and really high level communication skills. And I, and I, I, I didn't even really know about craft then, but intuitively I knew that I, that I didn't know what I didn't know. And I had to learn a different way. And so then I, I developed these, what I call 15 principles of loving well, which will be going into a book someday. <laughs> I, I haven't quite gotten to that point yet, but you know, there are things like taking the shame and blame out of the disease. Hey, okay. Pam, can yeah. I, can I ask you a couple questions before you go into those 15? Yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, maybe somebody else might have similar questions too. Um, the craft book, or the, the craft um, method. method, yes. Is that like someplace in a book or is it only in training um, that we can learn from? It, is there something that a mom could go through on her own in the craft area? Yes. So the, there's a book called Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change. I have that, it, yeah. Yeah, it was written by Jeff Foote and I've been trained by Jeff. I, him and I are good buddies. Um, and um, that incorporates craft, motivational interviewing and, a, and uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. So it's kind of a meld. And, um, and then craft, there's a website called Allies in Recovery and it's alliesinrecovery.net. And right now there's a program and it's, I think eight modules that you can go through to learn more about craft. Oh. And it's uh, it's dry, I'm just telling you right now. It's not like... <laughs> oh, it's dry meaning it's boring, <laughs> kind of sort <laughs> It's a little, it's sometimes I, that's just my personality yeah. though. I'm like, okay, get, let's get to the bottom line here. Yeah. And one of those people, I always say, I'm not a yoga girl, I'm a CrossFit girl, because I'm... <laughs> You know, I'm just, I like to move and keep things going, but it's very good. It's very good. And it's very informative. And then there's a gal who has videos called Put the Shovel Down. And it's a YouTube channel. Her name is Amber Hollingsworth. And um, all of her videos are informed by craft. Now she is not, um, none of these are Christian. None of these incorporate any kind of faith values into them but they're not incongruent with faith values. They're very much about like behavioral um, communication skills and changes that we can make when we interact with someone more effectively, so. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And then the title of your book, did I, can you say that again? I think I said it, but I wanna make sure moms know what the title of your book is too. It is, and I wish I had a picture of it, but it's praying our loved one home. Okay, so I I thought it was a book and then I looked, but it's also a Facebook group, am I right? Well, no, it's a page. Okay. okay. So I have a page, um, which I started in 2014 before I wrote the book. And um, it the prayers are on there and okay. it's the same as what, it's 
probably not the same as what you're going to get in the book, but the book is way better because it's oh. illustrated and it's, well, you don't have to be on Facebook to get them. Um, it's a, just a beautiful book. It was designed professionally by a, a, a publishing company that does a lot of Joyce Myers and Bob Goff and, you know, so it's really beautiful and it's something that you can set on your table and pick up and read whenever you want to. But the beauty of these prayers and the story behind the prayers is, um, and, and I talk about this, you know, we had been in this, uh, on a Bible reading plan, there's a book called The Divine Mentor and it's, um, the process is called SOAP. Some of you might be familiar, but it's a way to study the Bible. SOAP stands for Scripture, Observation, Application, and Prayer. And so that summer, we had started this daily Bible reading plan where we soaped, you know, and part of soaping is when I come up with a scripture, I'm going to ask the Lord how to apply it to my life, and then I'm going to pray over it. And I started doing that for myself, but then I was like, hey, I could pray these verses over my son. And the beauty of, of this book is there's a couple things about it. One is, you know, sometimes in the middle of the fog, right? <laughs> the fog that we're in when we're, when we're in the middle of all of this, we don't even know sometimes what to pray or how to pray. And I just always felt like scripture to me was God's truth. No matter what I thought, no matter what I wanted, I knew that if I was praying scripture, it would be God's truth and God's will. So every single prayer is um, prayed scripture, and you can just insert your person's prayer or name in there, and I do post them in your group too. So like you see those prayers every day. I post them in the group. Why would you want to buy a book? Because it's just really pretty and it's a great book. So I'm just saying. Um, but yeah, that's the story behind the book is I just was writing these prayers every day and posting them. People were like, you need to, where, what book are you getting these from? Yeah. I'm just writing them myself. Beautiful. And just beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So I just went for it. And I, someone just, my niece who's like an Amazon seller and she's like she just sent me a picture yesterday and she's she said Pam your book is like 500,000th of all the books on Amazon which anything under a, a million is like really good and I've just that's just the Lord because I've never I don't have distribution channels I self-publish and you know it's just that God has made this book available for people. And I love when I hear stories like that because it's it's empowering. Um, even from, from somebody who likes to write, uh, I found the same thing with one of my books and an agent told me to just never bother even writing it because it would never sell. And so I love that it just does well without anything, right? But it's all about the story. Um, so as far as like, Okay, you, you were going to talk next about like the 15, can you identify what was that, the 15 principles that you live by or to love yeah. and God? So, um, you know, when I, I, oftentimes I'll talk about loving well. In fact, I use the loving well hashtag quite a bit. Um, here's why, and I'm just going to tell you why I use that, because um, in the age of social media, there are certain words that have morphed 
into opportunities for us to dehumanize. And tough love is one of those words. I think out of context, it can be taken very extreme. And so, you know, when, if someone is going to a 12 steps and they've been in Al-Anon for, you know, 20 years, um, maybe they have, have this context of what tough love might be, although it's not even really an Al-Anon word. And people will say, I had to do tough love. I had to kick my kid out. And so oftentimes what happens with social media is you have these sound bites and these sound bites are, you know, just do tough love, right? Just, just kick them out. And, and they're not contextual and it can become really dangerous for families. I believe that detachment and disconnection and cutting people off drives addiction and that the opposite of addiction is connection. At the same time, we know that there are extraordinarily problematic behaviors in substance use, right? So we balance this idea of healthy boundaries. I just got done doing a four-week boundaries workshop. We had over 100 people register. It was awesome. But it was like, what do, what do boundaries look like for us? How do we communicate those boundaries? And then um, how, because, and I love Brene Brown and all of her work, and she'll say the most loving and compassionate people that I've met are the people that, that are well-boundaried. And so what loving well looks like is, see, God created us to be in family and he created us to have influence. And if we're cut off from our person, we can no longer have influence, right, in their lives. So how do we do the dance? How do we maintain this balance of keeping ourselves safe, which is really important, and loving our person and staying in some sort of relationship so that we can influence them, right? And so part of this idea of loving well is, you know, how we think about the, the disease of addiction. Um, so for me, that's, you know, understanding that our person isn't bad, they're not well. Um, understanding intrinsic value that God made each of us with value and that even when someone is ill in the disease, um, they still have value. And I, honestly, I have seen well-meaning people advise family to treat their kids worse than they would treat their animal. You know, leave them outside to suffer. Don't get them a sleeping bag to keep them warm. They have to figure it out themselves, you know, don't. And so when I work with families and I do this a lot, uh, and this is, you know, I don't want to, I know we're, we're, we don't have a, a lot of time, but what we, what we start to do is talk about intention, right? So I'm not going to just send someone DoorDash to get them off my back because they're relentlessly begging me for food, right? That would probably not be productive. But loving well might say, you know what? 
I want to be able to influence my person and they're hungry. So I'm going to buy them a bag of groceries and go deliver it to them so that I can look them in the eyes, give them a hug, tell them I love them, make them feel like a human being, even if they're using. So that means I have to be in the right space emotionally as well. Oh my goodness. I'm, I'm so glad that you said this because I'm sure like me, any mom listening to this has done something similar. And I remember doing this for our son and his wife with his children after church, we went to the grocery store and it, it wasn't so much, I, people are like, well, yeah, but you pay for his groceries. That money he could have been using on groceries, he spent on drugs. But in that moment, I, I, I just felt like it was the Christian thing to do to bring compassion to them. Like you said, you know, connect with the eyes, give them a hug. You still love them. You know, they're suffering through it. But then coming home and telling my husband, he was like, you did what? And so it's not even um, a contradiction sometimes sometimes we just don't know what to do. And so there's that line of giving or rescuing too much. And then even with our spouses, where our spouses are, is a different place too. So it's, it's so difficult, complicated. And that's where, you know, I think like a lot of the work that I do, I end up working with both the husband and wife so they can agree and decide. And so it really is about, this is what it all boils down to. What are my values? How do I want to be? And how am I going to walk through this intentionally rather than reactively? Right. And so when I move through this with intention, and so maybe financially, it's not feasible for me to spend the money on a bag of groceries every week, but maybe I can connect with them and take a walk in the park. Or maybe I just, um, you know, decide once a day or once every other day, I'm gonna, I am gonna take their phone call. But here's the thing, we have to be, like I said, we have to be emotionally, um, so there's things that you have to do in this. You have to change your expectations, right? Because when we insist on sobriety, if we, if the only way I can have a relationship with someone is if I know that they're sober, then that completely, you know, causes disconnection, right? So for me, it was, I was going to connect with him regardless. So he's living out of our home, not in our home anymore. He's out living with a friend, he's using, but he's still going to work and he still needs his haircut. And we still want to have lunch once in a while. And was it hard? It was hard. It is not easy to see your son lose weight, get thin, wild eyes, you know, sometimes being hostile. And I'm a person that would, I, it takes everything in me spiritually to shut up. Right. So, but, I, but as I became more compassionate, our home became a safe place place so that then he was able to come to us and ask for help. So where do you recommend some moms, you know, how you say intentionality versus reactionary, right? So at, at one point I was so 
what would happen to my body, I would not even want it to happen, but my heart would race. I would um, feel like I was going to have a panic attack when I was in their presence because I'm such an empath, right? So I just wanted to deflect um, that energy. And so for my health, I had to remove myself or detach and ask my husband to be the emotional connection between them. So for people, for moms like me who um, know that they can't just go for a walk or sit in the space, um, how do you recommend they, they get there? Or um, is it just lowering our expectations or what are some tricks to help us get through that? So, you know, I talk about um, changing the story yeah, and, um, you know, the Bible says we have to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And, and um, so, you know, we, we create a story in our head. Um, oftentimes we have created that story before we're even in the presence of another person. So we have these expectations that they're going to behave this way, or they're going to do this, or they're going to do that. And, and so when I work with um, a mother on this, you know, we might, we might work on, first of all, our own identity, because a lot of times those negative uh, behaviors come from our thoughts, which are rooted in a false belief of who we are in Christ, right? So if we think that our value is intrinsic to that person getting help or that person being sober, that person going to college, that person getting married, then we're gonna, we are going to be dysregulated. We are going to have problems with that, right? The other piece is if we're triggered. So maybe we need to work on what our uh, trauma has been and that we always want to go to a therapist. Um, there are some really cool spiritual healing you know, uh, like opportunities out there, I guess. So looking at, you know, um, I had past trauma because I had parents that were alcoholics that caused me to be dysregulated every time I was around my son. I need to go back and do some EMDR so that I can work through that trauma. EMDR is a trauma therapy that's out there. And that really helped me um, that and DBT helped me become more emotionally regulated. It gave me practical tools that I can use so that I would not become dysregulated when I was with my son. So it was uh, creating a different story, using breathing, um, learning how to pause and distract myself sometimes. I'll tell you a story. I, lo I love telling this story. Um, but my, so my son is 20 months in recovery or 21, somewhere around there. Um, but the last time he relapsed, he was in Arizona. We were supposed to go out and see him. And he was, he, that was when he ended up using IV heroin. And I'd already planned a trip out there. I knew I was going to be with him. My daughter was coming. And so we had plan to go to Sedona for the day. And I knew he was using, I could tell the minute I was with him, we were using and, but I did not cancel the plan to go to Sedona. And I was like, I know this is going to take every ounce of my being 
to, to do this day with him, but I didn't want to disappoint my daughter. And I just thought it was super important that we connect again. Connection is the opposite of addiction. Connection equals influence. So the next day we got up and we went to Sedona and he was really not good. He was in the back of our seat, you know, nodding off, um, taking too long in the bathroom. You know, the behavior sometimes he, he wasn't mean or nasty, but he was kind of stupid. <laughs> you know, it was like, you know, just over gushy, trying too hard, but I didn't call him out on it. It was not the time or the place to call him out on it. And so I just, we just, okay, wait, we got to applause that for a minute. Like, I don't know how you get there. I, uh, oh yeah. Well, that's, that's what I'm going to tell you is literally it took, I was in my car and I was saying to myself, this was my mantra was, I have to love him well today because if he dies tonight, I want to remember this day. I took tons of pictures because I thought he is using something serious. And if he dies tonight, I want to have pictures. He could die tonight. And if he dies tonight, I want to know that those last moments with him, he felt seen and he felt heard and he felt loved. Honestly, literally, that was my mantra I was telling myself and it sounds bad it sounds really doom and gloom but it actually for me motivated me to just be in the moment with him and not be worrying about the fact that he was high and so you know drop him off at the hotel and the next day I have to get on a plane to come back to Minnesota and I, I mean that goodbye honestly you guys it was the hardest goodbye I've ever had with him because I knew he was in trouble I knew he was in trouble um, but I knew he, I knew he, he'd asked for help before. I knew he knew that I knew all the resources out there. Um, you know, cause that's what I do for part of, you know, is navigating resources and connecting people to ethical resources. So I'm at the airport, you know, sobbing cause I'm leaving and I get a text from him and it says, mom, I need to go to detox. And I'm like, okay, detox from what? And he says, I don't want to tell you. And I said, well, you have to tell me because it matters. And he said, from heroin. And um, it took a, a, another month to get him, you know, we got him on Suboxone, tried that. Then he ended up not being able to manage that, lost his job. And then that was, and we allowed for the natural consequences in that. So no. hang on a second, Pam. So you're at the airport and he texts you this. Do mm -hmm. you go back and get him into detox or did you empower him to get himself there? Well, I got, I got on the plane. You went home. Mm -hmm. okay. I did. And um, because he, I, he, I knew like, I knew he was, I knew he needed to do this himself. Um, and I, you know, I was like, I'm, I'm literally, it was five minutes before boarding and I did not think it was, would be in either of our best interests at that point for, but I, but he knew I was with him. See, that's the difference. I didn't do it for him, but I said, we can do this. That was the language I used. 
you know, what do you need for support? We're communicating via text message. And so he knew that we were with him as a family every step of the way, but I knew that it would not serve him well for me to do it for him. And so I just gave him numbers, you know, made suggestions, made recommendations. And then I, I allow for these natural consequences, right? So he's living in a sober house and he's got a job and he's using heroin. I'm thinking this isn't gonna last very long. And I knew that I had to allow that process. Like he needed to lose his job. He needed to lose his sober living. I was there and it had, I thought that he was really, really, really in imminent danger of dying. I, I might've made another trip back there, right? But, but yeah. we had enough connections out there and we had enough, um, but, and I, you know, I, it, it, I was just, he was, he was con constantly in communications with me. And, and again, like when, when this happened and he's been through, I think over, he's been, he's close to a dozen residential treatments and maybe 20 total. I, I didn't say to him, what the heck are you thinking? How the heck could you do this to us again? Right? There was no blame. There was no shame. There was none of that. It was like, okay, what are we going to do about this? Right? So when we, um, you know, there's enough shame to go around, right? There's enough blame to go around. They know already. They're so steeped in that shame that it, it serves no purpose, none whatsoever for us to remind them how horrible they are. What we need to do, and I, I love this quote by a guy that um, I've gone through some of his trainings and he's like, I don't believe that we're inherently broken. I believe we're inherently forgetful. And that we forget who we are. And we just need to be reminded. And so if our kids, all they're hearing is, you know, you're, you're a failure, you're a loser. And even if you're not out and out saying that, sometimes by you know, intervening too quickly or helping too much or, you know, some of the language that we use or even, even something as simple as saying, oh, you have so much potential. What we're really saying to them is you are not living up to your potential at all. And it's not helpful or beneficial. But when we say, you know what, I believe you can get through this. What are you going to do? What do you want to do? You know, I, we never dictated treatment for our son. He, we gave him options and he chose. We didn't make him go to a faith-based program because that's not where he was at. And I was like, okay, sober first. And Jesus is in every single program that I know that's out there. So I'll let God worry about how he's going to get to Jake. In the meantime, a dead person can't recover and so it was more important for us to keep him alive, you know, but, but we allowed him the agency in those decisions. You know, where do you want to go for treatment? What do you want to do for aftercare? So when he went through treatment this last time, he chose it. He drove himself in a snowstorm from Prescott, Arizona, down to Mesa, Arizona to get into detox. He went, 
He went through the treatment and then he chose his aftercare. He decided to go up to Colorado for a 90 day aftercare program and he's still living there. He is still on Suboxone and we support that. You know, we're, we're not, I'm kind of an advocate of, um, you know, do what you have to do for as long as you have to do it so you can stay alive. Right. Well, thank, thank you for sharing that. That was, whoo, that was beautiful. And I love, love, love that quote. Um, do you remember who, whose quote it was? I can always look it up too. Mark, well, Mark Pimsler, and it was on his Facebook page about it, I don't know, a while ago. And so I, I don't think it's like printed in any way oh. or, you know, it's just something that he put on his Facebook. I'll, I'll reach out to him and see if I can get it. What was Mark's last name? Himsler, P-I-M-S-L-E-R. Okay. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And you know what? That's not, that's not just for people who have a substance use disorder. That's for all of us, right? We, I think so many of us go through things in our life and we forget who God created us to be or who we are. And we just need to be reminded by somebody else who's looking at us differently than we see ourselves sometimes. So um, that's just beautiful. Love it. Yeah. You know, and I would say too, for those of you who have spouses um, that are um, walking through this journey with you, that we have to do the same thing with them. That my whole um, ministry is around what I call a loving, compassionate response to people that have substance use disorder. They're people first. Um, they deserve love. They, they need it. The seven desires of the human heart, you know, to feel heard, to be seen, to be validated, to be affirmed, to be touched right, to be loved. And when I do work with the homeless, you know, they, they are not, they are not robots. They are not animals. They are human beings. And I'm telling you, uh, you go to touch them and they, they won't let you go because they don't ever get that. But we need to be that way too with our spouses, just remembering that that they're suffering in this, that they lose who they are. You know, men especially, they're, they're sort of commissioned in, in Timothy and Titus to be uh, the manager of their home and to be the leader of their home. And then when their home falls apart because of substance use, it puts this deep failure on them. And so, you know, I think as wives, we can remember that really, you know, our, our men are just trying to do the best they can and, and their way of doing it is different than ours. And so having that same compassion and love for our, for our spouse is so important. Other siblings, you know, we, we can, we can take these principles, these guided principles of, of, um, I call them my superpowers. I'll just go through the superpowers really quick. Um, cause I know we're probably running out of time, but but these superpowers are, um, are listening. Like, so we're gonna be quiet first and we're gonna listen. We're gonna validate the person. We're gonna affirm them. 
We're going to ask open-ended clarifying questions to determine what they want and what they need. And then we're going to empower them again through empowering questions to make the decision. And if they're still confused and they really want your help, then we're going to gain consent. Okay, so listen, affirm, validate, ask clarifying questions, ask open-ended empowering questions, and then gain consent. So what that might look like is, mom, I just got kicked out of my apartment or I just got kicked out of the sober living home. I don't know what I'm going to do. Wow. I am so sorry to hear that happen to you. That must be really hard. You know, I know you've been working on your program and I know that your heart isn't to break rules. Tell me more about what happened. Right now, there, you, you listened, you validated, you I affirmed, and now you're um, asking that open-ended question about, well, tell me what happened. Yeah. Right. And they might tell you a wild lie, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, don't correct them. Yeah, then your response is, wow, that sounds really hard. Yeah, you're in a tough spot. Yeah. Yeah, again, I'm so sorry that happened. And then you say, what are you going to do? Right. Right? What? Well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I, you know, you just need to let me come back home. Well, you know, it sounds like you have, you have some choices here. Home isn't really an option, but what what could you do? Well, I don't know. I'm just going to be homeless. I'm 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 out of options. Well, you know, are you really? Well, I suppose I could go back to detox. That sounds like it might be a really good plan, right? So so we don't give them anything, you know. I, and this is something that came out of our boundaries workshop. I have mamas that you know. Well, my son lies to me and he manipulates me and he violates my boundaries all the time. And here's what I'm going to say. And I'm going to say this in love because I love you and y'all need to hear this. No one violates your boundaries. You violate them. You allow them to be violated. No one can manipulate you without your permission. Okay, so you have the power to decide how someone's going to be treated or allow you, how someone's going to treat you, you know, what boundaries you're going to set. And then you, you know, like, for example, somebody you, they're calling you 12 times on the phone every day because you're picking up 12 times. So you decide you're not going to pick up the phone. Nobody can violate that boundary, <laughs> right? Like it's your choice if you pick up the phone. I love it. Great. So we have power in this. And that's one of the things I, I dispel is this idea of powerlessness. Yet, no, we don't have power over someone else's behaviors. We can't control their addiction, but we have a lot of power. A, we have the power of the Holy Spirit in, a, in us. And B, B, we have the power to choose how we want to walk through this. And Amen. So, yeah. Yes. Awesome. Um, I think some people have to go. I just, if you have a question, 
um, that you want to ask Pam, you can unmute yourself or raise your hand if you don't know how, and I'll try to unmute you. I think Rhonda does. Yeah. While you're unmuting, I'm going to quick let my dog out. I'll be right back. Okay. She is pacing like crazy. I think, I think Rhonda, I think you're unmuted. Do you want to try to say something? I, I, I just wanted to say this is, this was fantastic. Unfortunately, the reason why I'm home this week is we are in quarantine. My family is, our son had COVID and I'm just thinking how, wow, I mean, it's bad we're in quarantine, but the Lord provided me to be off to where I could see this in person i mean i think it's different than just i like to be in person as i can and i mean it it was it was fantastic i mean thank you so much for sharing it really really was yeah it meant a lot to me it's it, it's so affirming to us too as moms um, because sometimes i think society wants to ch always try to tell us what to do and how to tough love them and kind of kick them to the curb and yeah inside it's like wait a minute like this is my child i don't i don't know how to do that so um i absolutely love this okay colleen's gonna ask a question now let me unmute you colleen um wait um let me see i think you oh there say something colleen see no can't hear you um, you're unmuted, so it might be your microphone. Oh yeah, you're unmuted, Colleen. But um, can you write it in the chat? Do you have a chat box there? Write it in the chat, and then I'll ask. See. Oh, now she's she's gone, but she'll be back. Um, thank you for sharing that, Rhonda. That I'm I'm so glad that you were able to be here too. So me. Oh no, still can't hear you, Colleen. It's probably. Yeah, and you're unmuted on my side, so it's probably your microphone. But um, down below, you have there's this little like chat. Um, just kind of run your cursor around it. And there's a chat box there too. So if you can figure that out and write your question in there, I'll I'll ask Pam. Um, any anybody else have any questions, comments? Lin hi, hi, I'm Linda. Okay. Um, yes, I, I'm so grateful for this. Thank you so much. This is so important. Um, I've gone, uh, I've done it uh, both this way and the, uh, we call it tough love way. And um, I'm uh, kind of baffled at what to do at this point in time. Um, my daughter uh, is, uh, struggles um, with um, a meth use addiction uh, disorder. And, um, and uh, I'm not sure if you dealt with this with your person or not, um, but when I'm with her, like the last time I was with her, we had dinner together. So that was nice. Um, things went along okay. And then started the uh, persecutory delusions toward me. <laughs> and I'm not quite sure. I, I, I tried to ignore them, but um, that was very frustrating to her. And like I was ignoring her um, I was just trying to head off an argument <laughs> and um, I'm just not quite sure how how to go about um, showing her love and um, it, but also keep myself safe because it starts raising my blood pressure and um, so anyways thank you so much maybe you can help me with that yeah Linda yeah it, it is meth is probably the 
the mm-hmm. harder one of any of them because they can, you know, get into that delusional psychosis and it's very difficult. Um, two two things I would say strategy wise. One is um, maybe you limit your time. So maybe you decide um, it. I can tolerate this for the amount of dinner, but then right after dinner, you know, we're going to bring her back to where she lives. So that time is maybe narrowed a little bit. You're still spending time with her, but you don't have so much time that there's that opportunity for it to get really volatile. Um, The other thing is with the delusional behavior, um, we found that interacting with that, um, almost like you would someone with Alzheimer's where, you know, you don't try to correct them. You don't, you know, tell me more about what you see or, you know, what you you almost sort of have to play along a little bit Mm -hmm. um, with that behavior so that it doesn't get, it doesn't escalate. So even though you know that they're completely delusional and everything they're saying is made up and they think that you're the, you know, alien coming to get you, you just say, well, you know, tell me, tell me a little bit more. Why don't you tell me what's happening right now? Or tell me what you're feeling or, you know, you don't try to engage in that in an argumentative way. Um, Maybe a curiosity way. Curiosity. Curious, and then also then maybe at that point you say, well, let's get you somewhere safe then. How about if we get you in the car and bring you back to where you can be safe? Because it sounds like you're not safe here. So you almost have to come up with some creative strategies to not engage in that because you will never, ever like win. <laughs> you know, if yeah. they're if they're in a delusional episode and they're, you know, they think that, the, that you're the FBI or that aliens are coming. I mean, these are all things I've heard with meth. Um, you, you really have to just give yourself uh, distance and space, right? Yeah, I love that. Cause, and the analogy with uh, Alzheimer's or dementia, because my mom had that. And that's exactly what we tried to do with her too. Um, I think Angel had a question too. Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you. Um... I've been struggling with tough love and letting go of my child. That's been very hard um, because I just, I I don't think I'm enabling much anymore, but to disconnect totally is very difficult and painful. And it's it's very hard to find the balance. And it's nice to hear that there is a balance that you can do, that you don't have to take the road where I feel like I'm abandoning my child. So it, w- it was good to hear that. But um, I know Rhonda mentioned something like that too, but I know it's, a, it's just such a difficult road to draw the line. And I think if we just think about it as accepting, like you just accept them for where they are as if you would accept um, a stranger who was homeless that you knew nothing about, you don't, or, or any, well, no, it's different because it's your child, but the point is that you, you don't have any expectations of a stranger because you don't really aren't connected that way. But if you, if you look at it the same way with your child and accept them and still love them for where they are, um, oh my gosh, it, it just, the, the difference in loving and I think that they you love them until they get well and I think they would definitely have more hope in that situation especially knowing that you're there for them Um, well and I and you know here's the thing is that 
And I, again, it's one of these, these phrases that has morphed into something really super negative. The idea of letting go. And, you know, I, I would say to let go or to surrender doesn't mean you let go of the person. Um, it means you um, let go of expectations and you let go of trying to control the behaviors of the person and you let go of, there's a really beautiful poem all posted in the group and I have it as part of one of my topics and it's, um, you know, to let go doesn't mean you stop caring. It means you can't do it for someone else. It doesn't mean to cut someone off. It's the realization that you can't control someone else. Right. Let yeah. go is to not enable, but to allow learning from natural consequences. So, you know, there's there, when I think of the term let go and how I would define that as part of my loving well principles, you know, we, we run into problems when we hold on to, and, you know, even um, the Beatitudes in the message Bible, you know, and it's like when we hold on to things too tightly, that's when we get into trouble. So what does let go mean? It means to let go of outcomes and it means to let go of expectations. And it means to let go of my need to have my needs met by someone else. When a God is the only one that can meet those needs. It means to let go of life sometimes, knowing that my person might die and that I can't save them. It might mean to let go of um, you know, some of those things that I just really hold dear and tight, but I have to start holding them much more loosely. And, um, so, but it, yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean we let go of the person. I no. think yeah. we, might, we need to give distance and space sometimes and I, that's okay. And my book is letting go without giving up. If, right. it, but I always want to insert letting go with love and without giving up. And, and like you said, it's not letting go of the child. It's letting, I always say the chaos, but the expectations, mm -hmm. the outcomes, so important. And um, sometimes I think it's getting to the root of why we're struggling with guilt or a lot of the things like you said, you seem very in tune to your emotions and why you're reacting a certain way the fact that you you've done EMDR and um, D was it DDT you called it? I'm not. I have to look that one up. <laughs> Maybe we'll do that next time, right? But um, yeah, I mean, you're really in tune to yourself, and I think you have to be. It's self awareness, and so you know, oftentimes when I react react um, a certain way instead of respond. I have to say, Ooh, Michelle, you were really like, um, you really went off there. Like what triggered that? What was really at the bottom of that? And it's, it's re having the sense to self-reflect and, um, I, I try to do it, but it, it's hard when it's yourself. So that's why, like you said, therapy, or I go to see a counselor and, and I'll just share that just openly, blatantly, like I went off, I, I just lost my cool, I reacted this way. And, and so we'll talk about that for a while. But wow, Pam, you seem so grounded in um, knowing who you are and why things well, happen. And I, I want to say this, and th I'm so glad you 
brought that up because when we decide that we want to stop reacting and start responding, we want to once again check all the boxes and do everything perfectly and we won't. And there's a place here for self-compassion and for humility and vulnerability. And so, you know, when we make mistakes, we can go back and we can say, listen, I reacted wrongly. I'm really sorry, you know? And I, I know that there will be moms out there that will say yes, but every time I try to be vulnerable and honest and apologize, my person just kind of throws it in my face. And my answer is do it anyway. Do it anyway, because whether or not this produces an outcome of recovery for your person, it produces fruit in your own life. Like what we're trying to do here is not necessarily get our person to recover or get them in treatment. What we're trying to do is live an abundant life, John 10, 10, right? I, I, I want to choose life. And God wants abundance for me. And I know that when I'm dysregulated, angry, frustrated, mad, when I've cut people off, when I'm prideful, all of those things do not produce an abundant life. Right? That word dysregulated. Oh, yeah. I, I, I always do Monday matters. You know, you can change your life if you focus on one word at a time. I think that word's going to be in there sometime soon. I love it. So um, does anybody else have any questions for Pam? Oh, Mary does. Hang on. I'll, I'll try to unmute you here. Hello? There's Hi. I got my granddaughter busy watching TV and ran into my bedroom because um, of the sensitivity of it. But boy, Pam, you've given me a lot to talk to think about. I appreciate your time and your offering to do this. Um, so just real quickly, um, over a year ago, I told my daughter, um, Sadie, that I just needed space from her. She needed to find her own way. I was emotionally, mentally exhausted. Her siblings, same, same way, they kind of let go before that. She has three older children that um, she had lost custody of, um, but was still seeing them. Um, they would come over on a very limited basis, except for the younger one who is now 15. So he's um, right about 13 when this happened. And the reason he kept coming over is because my daughter had married someone that she found in recovery and they had a, a little baby. And, um, and so he was coming over, come to find out through counseling, et cetera, to try and protect Oakley from um, mom and dad's drinking and, and such. And so he was trying to be a protector. Um, and so after my daughter suffered and no one should suffer like this, no matter what they've done, um, some real physical abuse by her husband who is now in prison um, and is getting out the end of December, which has my heart going like this. Um, abuse, I again, had her come, you know, live with me, um, tried to, you know, help her what I saw as helping. Um, you know, at first she, she could not have gone home by herself. Um, and so, you know, lots of talk of her turning things around. I did not realize she was drinking so much at the time. 
And then when she did go back home with um, Oakley, that's the, the little girl that keeps popping in and out, um, right back to drinking. We went up and down several times with me trying to um, trying to control things, to be honest with you. I've learned a lot about that um, is saying, you know, you know the resources, you've been through this before. She has, you know, done therapy before, um, rehab because of three DUIs. Um, it was, you know, prison or go to rehab, blah, blah, blah. And since that time, she's pled guilty to um, child abuse, which was neglect and um, an intoxication. And at that time, that was at the end of September, a year ago, I've had Oakley. Sadie also now has her fourth DUI that is still pending courts and with the virus, nothing's happening. And now it's like, what do I do with Oakley? Um, Oakley wants to be with her mama. She, she wants to be with her mom. Um, her, her other kids have not contacted her all. They're tired of, of it. Um, and I don't know what to do. We've started some court proceedings for me to get um, custody of Oakley. Uh, Sadie has been sober since uh, February when a monitor is called the SCRAM. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it detects um, alcohol in the bloodstream and then immediately the police station is aware of it and would arrest her at that time. That's part of her prob probation. I just am at a loss what to do with this little girl who wants to be with her mom, who um, is currently employed. Again, she keeps getting great jobs. That's usually with private companies. So even though she has a felony and now another DUI, she's able to, to get jobs. She has a roof over her head and such. And I just, I just look at the older three kids and the hell they're living now from what has happened in Oakley. And it's a hard thing to know what to do as a grandma and a mom. And I just don't know which way to turn. Suggestions, because I'm starting to get ice crystals around my heart. I love her dearly, but it's like my role has become to try and, and just decide this other stuff that it's kind of hard to do with this COVID, you know, as far as getting into people. Yeah. Well, I, and I can't even answer that question for you, Mary, because that is such a hard thing. There's so many grandparents raising their grandchildren and God bless you for being a safe place for Oakley. My, my counsel always is children first, right? You always have to do what's safe for the children. And then I would consult with legal, you know, advisors to determine if you can just have some rights to keep her. Um, sometimes, you know, when CPS is involved, which I'm assuming CPS is, um, CPS in Minnesota is what child protection, some people call it DFS. Um, but um, I think this is where Mary, it's so important to be in the place where you're listening to the Holy Spirit, maybe a, you know, looking at other mothers who have been through this and what they've done with their child. Um, again, what do I value the most? The most important thing, number one, is safety of the granddaughter, right? And so that's always at the top of your list of how you want to intentionally walk through this. And then maybe, you know, it's it's a hard thing to, to think about um, 
walking through building that trust again. And so, you know, it's a slow process and maybe it's mediated. Maybe you work with a family, you know, systems third party that can help you negotiate some of that. Maybe you keep the daughter, the granddaughter for a while, but then have supervised limited visits. I'm sure you've thought of all of these things. And, it, and it, it, I can't tell you how to walk through this for yourself. What I will just say is you have to decide what's most important. And if the safety of Oakley is most important, then that has to order all of your decisions. Even when it's difficult for the mother, but that's where then the communication comes in. If she's sober, then you know it is really important to sit down and say, listen, I know that you're trying. I affirm the work that you're doing. And right now, what's what we have to really uh, focus on and what has to guide us is, is Oakley and her safety, right? And so sometimes it's just having those really hard conversations. And again, that might be better off done with a third party so that it's, you know, very, um, very monitored and doesn't become volatile. At least for me, um, because I've been raising our grands off and on their, their whole lives, they're 15 and 10. And right now we have legal guardianship, but um, reunification um, in the past, for their parents would be, you know, we, they were addicted to heroin. We would take the girls until they would detox and get on their feet and then we'd give them back. And this went on for years and years and years. So then three years ago, um, when they were addicted to heroin, um, we said, you got to sign the papers because we're, we, we're going to take legal guardianship until we know that the, girls are safe and mm -hmm. safety was a big thing for us. But I will say, so I think, you know, Mary, our son and daughter-in-law are 20, 21 months um, into recovery now. And um, the girls still do not live with their parents, even though we're in the same, same city. So I don't know if your daughter lives near you, but so what we have, what, what we together have built is this slow process, not only be, for the kids, for the girls, because they didn't trust them. And so now they're starting to spend weekends at their little apartment. Um, they, they're on fall break. So mom just picked them up and she's going to take them to her work and show them what she's doing. And um, it's just a slow thing, but it's a lot of communication, a lot of back and forth. Um, so if your daughter is, is sober and doing well, you know, what does she want to do? And it's, it's kind of coming up with a collective um, approach to um, what's the healthiest for Oakley, you know, what's the healthiest for the girls. And I try not to have any expectations. I don't know what's going to happen permanently. All I know is what we have today. And so I just kind of celebrate today and what we have. And I have the afternoon off, I think. Woohoo. So, you know, but, um, <clears throat> and, and like PM said, like, I can't, we, nobody can tell you what to do. But one of the things I did early on, even when they were using, I knew they wanted to see the girls and we did not go through like CPS because CPS visited their home over and over again because the teachers would call. But 
because it was neglect and they couldn't prove anything, they just were okay. But um, I hired a third person and anytime there was visitation, um, they were with a counselor and they would play games. And sometimes they couldn't even like keep their eyes open. It was so pitiful, but they felt like they were still staying connected with the girls. And I used to be a foster parent. So it was important. I knew for them to, um, I'm not their parent. Like that bond is just really, really important. And it's not that the parents don't want to be loving. It's not that they don't love their children. You know, it's again, it's they, they've just been really sick. And um, even in parent teacher conferences today, I told the teachers, hey, you know, um, I hope it's okay. I'm going to share all this with their parents. They're very involved now. They've been sick for a couple of years, but they're doing really well. And so it's just kind of the way I've approached it. But um, I don't know. They could they could relapse tomorrow, but for today, um, I'm just where where we're at. And you know, I and I think, and, and I don't know. And I'll quit. I'll quit taking time after this. But if anyone has like resources, so like. And trying to do a reunification to have like a catch net there for Oakley that if things fall apart to be able, you know, I, I think that's that's one of my biggest fears. Um, I'm from Utah and in Utah, parents can do very little wrong and still keep their children. Um, DCFS would not get involved because I had gone in and rescued Oakley too many times that she didn't get physically harmed. And so they wouldn't get involved. I'm like, well, what about the emotional? Very frustrating. So if anyone has any resources or something about the reunification, like a safety net, some ideas, I would appreciate it. And I will turn the time over to this, these other wonderful moms. Yeah. Well, you're, you're fine, Mary. And I love what Michelle said. You know, I talk about collaborative agreements. And it sounds like that's a, something that Michelle did say, which is she's doing, she's sober right now. So you come up with these collaborative agreements, which are, you know, we, we know that it's in your best interest and your child's best interest for them to spend time with you. So let's negotiate what this is going to look like. Let's agree. And then part of that agreement is then the response. So the response would be like, as long as you stay sober or as long as you're doing okay, we're going to do this, you know, visit with a third party once a week but if you don't show up or if there is using behaviors then our response would be that we would you know not do that and there would be a recommendation for a higher level of care at that point and so um again and then part of the communication is not making this punitive, but just saying this is a, a safety issue for the kids. So we're not trying to punish you. We want unification. And, you know, I think Michelle would be a great guide for that as well. And, and she'll want the same. I mean, if if she's really doing well, I mean, our, our daughter-in-law and son, um, at first they hated me for, you know, for us, for taking guardianship, but um, they're so appreciative. They're so thankful that the girls have had such a stable um, place, but your, your daughter will want the same for Oakley. She will want um, the transition to be a loving one. For us, we, since we have legal guardianship, an attorney told us, wait a whole year of them 
you know, doing continually doing well. Well, it's been more than that now. So all they have to do is go to the court and say, we want to um, reinstate our guardianship of our children. And I don't, you know, I, like I said, I, I try not to go there yet. Um, I don't know that we would contest that, but it's, we're waiting for them to make that move when they're ready. So anyway, but yeah, Mary, reach out anytime I can help. So, but um, thank you so much, Pam, for all of this. And um, I, again, I will share it on the podcast and it'll be in the group. And I, I'd love to have you again. Um, I love your spirit and your heart. And I feel like you're the sister I never had. Five brothers and I never had a sister. So I'm like, yay. So thank you so much for being with us. And um, I'm going to go ahead and and uh, unless, did you have any last minute thought? Uh, well, just thank you so much for having me. It's always an honor. And, you know, just like, remember love never fails. Love never fails. No, so true. Thank you.